Well, let's make our way to our seats as we get ready to open God's Word. I got a confession to make for you guys. This past week, um, I saw a Lifetime movie. This is, this is hard for me, guys. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling here. Just trying to be transparent with my brothers and sisters. I need accountability here. I watched the Lifetime movie. I didn't cry. Um, it, that's right. <laughs> it was a movie about Simone Biles. Anybody seen that one? Anybody know who Simone Biles is? Simone Biles is the most decorated U.S. gymnast in history. Simone Biles won four Olympic gold medals in Rio this past Summer Olympics a couple years ago. Uh, she has won countless world championships. Actually, count, not countless. She's, we know how many she's done. She's won 19 total um, uh, Olympic and world championship medals. All right, Simone Biles is a, is a driven young lady. And in this Lifetime movie, um, she talks about her journey as a gymnast. And what's always helpful when we see documentaries about athletes is we realize the sacrifices it takes for them to achieve their goals. Uh, She had to sacrifice many things, but throughout the movie, there's this common thread. She has this journal that's her her dream journal. All her dreams are in there, and of those dreams is to be an Olympic gymnast. And she keeps that on the forefront of her mind, and every decision she makes is informed by this passion of hers. Everything she does, she says, it's worth it. Because of the goal, based on what I I want to accomplish, her passion informs her life. You know, when we think about our lives, we realize the things we care most about make a difference in the decisions we make every day, don't they? Well, what is it like for someone who follows Jesus to be passionate for the worship of his or her God? What's it like to say, I, I am passionate about seeing my God's name exalted? See, that, that's an important question because the answer to those questions are the things that, that affect the way we lead our lives. That goal affects the decisions that get there. Today we're going to talk about having a passion for worshiping God. I, I'm often reminded of a prayer by a man named A.W. Tozer. He says, he says, God, O triune God, I want to want thee, and I long to be filled with longing. I love that wordplay, huh? I want to want you, and I long to be filled with longing. That, that's the heart of a worshiper of God. And, and don't get, don't, don't mistake in this. Worship is singing. Yes, it is, but it's not only singing. It's not merely singing, but it, it's singing, yes. When we sing to God, and we do so with a heart of surrender to him. It is an act of worship, but we can worship God in various other ways in our lives as our hearts are surrendered and have as their ambition to see God's name exalted. That's what it means to live a life of worship to God. But what will we do, furthermore, when worship in our lives and in our community starts to waver? What do we do when our faith feels on the fringe? What do we do when our devotion is on decline or when, when the truth of God is being put to the test? Because these things matter when it comes to worship. All right? I, I want to know the answer to this. Do you, do you want to know that? 
All right, come on. You guys want to know that? Because I'm not going to continue on. We don't want to know this. All right? We, we want to know what it is to have a heart of worship and to be passionate for worship and to have zeal for the name of God and to find out how to have that and what we do about that and how that looks in our lives. Would you join me in the book of Joshua chapter 22? Joshua chapter 22. We're going to take a look at what it is to have this passionate worship of God. The book of Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible And Joshua 22 is almost at the very end of that book. Next Sunday, we're going to conclude our series on the book of Joshua. I had a memory this week, and I'll share this with you guys, because there's a sister who used to come to the brook here, an elderly lady named Gloria, who went to be with the Lord this past week. You might remember Gloria Andrzak, a sweet, sweet woman, and uh, her wake will be today at 3 o'clock at the Montclair Funeral Home, and her funeral tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., and I'll be performing the funeral tomorrow morning. Um... Gloria was 95 years old, and uh, she lived a, a full and vibrant life. I, I mention her because, um, as I'm telling you, we're going to conclude our message series on Joshua la- next week. Uh, about a year ago, I was doing a series, or two, not, more like two years ago, doing a series on the book of Mark, and Tony Navarro was preaching in my, my stead here, and Gloria used to sit up in that section over there, and Tony stood up and was pre- getting ready to preach. He said, hey, we're, I'm going to continue the series in the book of Mark. Uh, have you guys been enjoying that series? And uh, she had a bit of a hearing issue. And so she says, it's been all right. <laughs> How about that? I'm speaking the truth. I told her daughter about that story. She says, you need to share that at her funeral. That's my mom. So next week we close the book of Joshua, and hopefully it's been more than all right. Um, today we're going to learn about what it means to worship God, though, from the book of Joshua. And what we see here in chapter 22 is, It's coming to a conclusion. The book of Joshua is a story of how God has brought his people into the land he promised them, which is why we call that the promised land. And it's not a smooth transition. There are people who inhabit the land whom God's judgment is getting ready to be poured out on them. God has been telling them to turn from their wickedness. They hadn't turned. And God says, I'm bringing my instrument, which is the nation of Israel, to come and execute my judgment on your wickedness. And in so doing, I'm going to fulfill my promise of judgment to the wicked people and fulfill my promise of, of the land to my people Israel. And that's what the book of Joshua is all about. We see that Joshua, the man, his faith is being tested from day one because he's thrust into this leadership position leading millions of people. And it's a scary position for him because not only are the people the kind of people that will turn on you in a moment, but the people that are in the land that they're going to are giants and warriors, and every step will require a step of faith. We've seen in the series, Joshua stumbles along the way. He messes up. The people of Israel mess up. But they learn that as they turn back to God, they turn from their sin and embrace him and worship him, that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And he ultimately gives them rest in the land. Well, at the end of the story, Joshua is getting ready to send off two and a half of the tribes. Let's pretend that this room is the nation or the land of the promised land. And right down the middle is the Jordan River. All right, on the, on the western side of the land is the promised land that we're aware of. But on the eastern side of the land, on the other side of the Jordan, there is a segment of the promised land there. The people who lived on the other side of the Jordan were just two and a half tribes of Israel, and the most populous are towards the Mediterranean Sea on the western side. You're like, okay, thank you for the geography lesson. You're welcome. It matters. Because the people on the eastern side, the smaller group of them, they were given the land first, 
because Moses was still alive when they got that part of the promised land. And they said, we want this land. And Moses said, that's fine, except for this. When your brothers and sisters cross the river to take the promised land, you got to go with them and fight with them. You, you can't enjoy your property until your brothers and sisters are ready to enjoy theirs, basically. And so in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua gives them this command. They're like, hey, we're down as well. So Moses told them, Joshua told them, and they go off to battle with their brothers. It's a remarkable thing to see their commitment to the promise because this, is a, this took years. This wasn't a few months. This was a many-year military campaign. And at the end of the campaign, we come to chapter 22, verse 3. Joshua's talking to them. He says, you have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given the rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. And then Joshua gives them these last words in verses 5 and 6. Only be very careful to observe the commandments and the laws that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love, say love. To love the Lord your God and to walk, say walk. To walk in all his ways and to keep, say keep. To keep his commandments and to cling, say cling. To cling to him and to serve, say serve. Serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. What a moment, huh? All these years fighting and struggling, and Joshua's like, hey guys, good job. You can go in peace. Just before you go, remember these things. Love the Lord, walk in his ways, keep his commands, cling to him, and serve him. This is what it means to worship him. Just hold on to this God of ours. Love him, not like you love tacos. (laughs) Love him in such a way where he is the pinnacle of your affections. He is the ultimate one that you want to live for. He says to also walk in all his ways. I'm I'm thinking of the psalmist who says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or sits in the seat of scoffers or stands, uh, I'm sorry, stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but he delights on the law and the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. That's what it means to walk with him. He's saying, love God as, as the pinnacle of your affections. Walk in him by loving his word. He goes on to say, keep his commandments. Keep watch over your soul like a watchman watches the city and say, God, am I obeying you? Cling to him. Hold on. Get white knuckled in your faith, he tells them. And he says, serve him. Don't let those gifts you've got go to waste. Don't be passively sitting on your hands when God is here to be worshipped. He said, if you remember those things, go in peace. And so they go in peace. See, worshipping the Lord is for the good of our soul and for the glory of his name. Augustine, the North African saint, said, O Lord, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And so what Joshua is saying, they found rest. Now you go rest and worship and cling to and love and serve your God. 
on the other side of the Jordan. It is for the good of your soul. And we know it's also for the good of those around. Because as they see you love and worship your God, they see something sweet. They see something about your life and they say, I want some of that. And generations and generations and generations are affected by that kind of devotion. And so here we are, the people there ready to have a heart, a passionate heart for worship. But as I've said before, a lot of stories in the Bible are like that really good Lifetime movie that starts out very sentimental, and then something bad happens. This is Joshua 22. Because if we jump down to verse 10, we notice that there's going to be a quick twist in this story. Everything seems so good. There is pie in the sky. And then verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan... That is in the land of Canaan. That's when they crossed over and went on the other side where their possession was. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan. What kind of altar in verse 10? An altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel, that is those on the other side, heard it. And they said, behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And you're like, what just happened? Joshua sends them out. They get over, they build this altar of imposing size. The other Jewish people, the other Israelites see this, and they're like, what's going on? And they grab their swords. What's the big deal here? Well, this is the big deal. Because in Deuteronomy 13, verses 12 through 15, it says, If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God has given you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their cities, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that, of that city to the sword. Moses warned against apostasy, turning away from faith in God. Furthermore, in Deuteronomy 12, it says, Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. And that place was on the other side of the Jordan in the city where the tabernacle was. And now they see this altar of imposing size, and they're saying they're going to sacrifice in a place that God did not authorize, and we don't know to whom they're sacrificing. Get your swords. This is where the story is. The people of Israel then, you see, are passionate for the pure worship of their gods. Of their God, singular, not plural. They're passionate for the pure worship of their God. And so what they do is they call a crisis response team. The head of it is a guy named Phinehas, you see in verse 13. He's the son of Eliezer, the priest. Then they also get 10 chiefs from the tribes of Israel in verses, verse 11, following, or verse 14. They muster this crisis response team and says, Phinehas, you got to go see what's up over there. 
Take these men with you. Get your swords with you and be ready. Phineas goes over to them. And look what he says in verse 16. He says, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? What is this breach of faith? What are you guys thinking he's saying? But but, but notice, notice the mercy he shows them in verse 17. Have we not, I'm sorry, uh, that's later on, but look what he says in verse 17. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away from this, this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry and the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, look at this mercy he shows them. Pass over into the Lord's land on the other side, where the Lord's tabernacle stands. You want to worship? Come over to to our side then. And look at verse 20. He says, Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? He's telling them, Haven't we learned our lesson from our failures in the past? That when we turn away from God, it doesn't work out for our good? Phineas has got an issue with it. He mentions two occasions. He says, haven't we had enough of the sin at Peor? You see that? And he says, don't you remember Achan? He tells him two stories here. Peor is one that's very fascinating. Because in the book of Numbers, God's people start intermarrying with the other nations. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing, except for the fact that the other nations worship other gods. And so now the people of Israel are turning to other gods' idols. And God is saying, you have corrupted pure worship at this place called Peor. And because of it, God sends a plague on his people, and 24,000 people die by the plague. And the plague continues until they rid of this impurity from their land, and they execute, essentially put to death those who have participated in this idolatry. And they thought they had ridden the land of all the people. And there was one man left who had begun to worship idols. And Phinehas, son of Eliezer, sees that man, pulls out his sword, and puts him to death. And at that moment, the plague stops. So we see it's strategic that they send Phinehas again in the same moment. Phinehas tells him, haven't we had enough of that? It didn't work out for our good. He says, you remember Achan? You might as well remember in Joshua chapter 7 how this man stole things from the city of Jericho after the walls came tumbling down. And God's people suffered because of it. Phineas is like, look, guys, we can't deal with this. What Phineas is telling them is in the face of sin, don't get hysterical. Get historical. All right? Say, don't get hysterical. Get historical. Hysterical is to be overcome with emotion. It's to begin to panic or have extreme fear or sometimes we use it in extreme laughter. But in the face of temptation, in the face of sin, we often panic and start continuing to spiral out of control. And Phineas is saying, don't be hysterical, get historical. History is an important thing when faced with temptation to sin. History does two things. It provides for us a warning and a weapon. 
It is a warning and a weapon. Phineas says, here's the warning. Remember Peor? Remember Achan? Be warned if you continue in this path. The Bible is filled with warnings telling us, get historical. There was a Harvard professor who once said, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Phineas is saying, you remember Peor. You remember the dangers. Don't go repeating it, being ignorant of the things that happened in the past. People often tell us experience is the greatest teacher. It's a good teacher. It's not the greatest. Because the implication of that statement is that you've got to fail to learn. But the Bible is chock full of warnings saying, don't do that. You think of the scriptures like Samson, this man endowed with amazing strength, and we see the warning, don't waste your gift. What did he do with it? But wrathful vengeance, he wasted his strength until finally his day, the day of his death. It's a warning. God has given you a gift. Don't sit on it. Let history teach you. There are warnings against the forbidden women throughout the book of Proverbs where the father is looking at his son. He says, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments. He says, say to wisdom, you are my sister and call inside your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman. It's a warning, scripture gives us. Or the warning against lying and coveting in the book of Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, when they sell some of their property and tell the church, here's all the money that from the proceeds of our property when it was only some of the money. And it wasn't what they gave, but the heart with which they gave. They wanted the fame of being known as someone who was generous when they weren't in their hearts. The Bible tells us, get historical, because history provides a warning. And that's what Phineas is doing here. You don't need experience to teach you always. So listen to God's word and heed the warnings. But history is also a weapon. History is a weapon. The Bible was written over 2,000 years ago with the Old Testament, and about 2,000 with the New. It is historical in that it is something from the past that still speaks in the present. And therefore, God's word is a weapon. A historical weapon. When we're tempted to despair, we remember that Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? That's a weapon. It's a weapon when you're tempted to sin and you remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, No temptation has come to you except for what's common to man. But God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. That's getting historical with temptation. You guys here, man? You guys here? Come on. See, God God tells us to get historical with the victory that is ours. In in Christ, we are new creations. And so when you're tempted to live in your old self, get historical. The old me's dead. There, there, There was a death date and a new birth date. That's getting historical with temptation. Or when Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. See, when you're confronted with the 
the temptation to, to forsake your God or to, to fall into the different sins that would hold you down. You look them in the eye. You remember the warnings and you remember the weapon that God has given us in his word. This is how we make war. And this is what Phineas is telling God's people here. Sin has a way of making us very nearsighted, doesn't it? It has a way of blurring the distance between our action and the future consequences of that action. I take off my contact lenses. I can barely see my wife's face from here. I got bad vision. It's like minus 6.5 or something like that. 6.0. It's different in each eye. I'm messed up. And I know, though, that if I get real close, I could see something. But I got no chance in the back of the room. I'm nearsighted. What sin often does, it puts the temptation right here and it looks so good and the consequences that follow seem so distant that we have no concern about them. But what it does is it kills you. So be warned. Grab your weapon. Heed God's instructions. And don't be shielded from the consequences. Phineas is like, brothers, We know where this path is going to take us, and it's bad. Repent. Turn away. I love his passion for pure worship. If you and I share that same passion, we're going to get historical and not hysterical in the face of temptation. If we share his passion, we're going to say, God, I know what your word teaches me, and I'm going to make war against temptation. We see his passion. And then we see in verse 21, he gives them an opportunity to respond. An opportunity to explain their actions. He has cross-examined them, and now it's their opportunity to give a defense. And here's what they say. Verse 21, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, In answer to the heads of the families of Israel, verse 22, the mighty one, God the Lord. The mighty one, God the Lord. He knows, and let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. For building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. But no, verse 24, no. But we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence. Notice what they tell them. They said, hey, You've misunderstood this altar. We're not putting that up to make sacrifices on it. We're not putting it up to worship other gods. We've put this up because in future generations, we're afraid 
that this Jordan River that divides our side with yours, that your children will say, you're not part of us. There's an exclusion here. And our God isn't your God. So he said, we built this so that when everyone sees it, we would remember that we worship the same God you do. They built the altar out of a passion to worship. Fascinating. I love how they start out. They said, the mighty one, God the Lord. Mighty one, God the Lord. That's not even right grammar. In Hebrew, it's El Elohim Yahweh. El Elohim Yahweh. And what it is is basically saying this. God is the God of gods. And Yahweh is that God. We're not trying to worship any other God. There's only one. We know who it is. And not only is he God of gods, which makes him omnipotent, all-powerful, but he's also omniscient. God knows, he says. They say, he, he knows and let Israel know. God knows our hearts. We're not trying to worship anyone else. But they're afraid that, that this river is going to create an exclusion because they came from the other side of the tracks. They're from the other neighborhood. They're afraid, they're going to say, you're close enough to notice, but far enough to ignore about worshiping our God. Hear this, family. They're concerned about worship. (laughs) If you want a war. (laughs) We're going to make war, right? <laughs> They're saying we want a legacy of worship to happen. Families, we look in our community, we get comfortable on our side of the Jordan. And we see those on the other side of the tracks, the other neighboring communities, and we might see them. They're close enough to notice, but far enough to ignore. We're falling into the very trap the Reubenites and Gadites and Manassites were afraid of. We got to get out of our comfort zone. And here, in order to preserve worship for future generations, they build an altar. We've got to understand that when we keep the goal, the the dream journal, and we see in there, God, I want to worship you. Every decision we make matters towards that. And then the decisions we make have implications for those who come after us. They knew that they would worship God. They knew that the others across the Jordan knew they were about. They just did war with them for, for a few years. They know their devotion. But what about your children? What about the grandchildren? What about the great-great-grandchildren? And five greats away. Will they know? So they built an altar because they cared about it. They realized that the greatest thing to pass on to their children is not happiness or wealth or property, but worship. I shared with you guys a few weeks ago, and it's worth restating that this year, this semester right now, Yale University has its most popular class in the history of Yale. 1,200 students, a quarter of the student body signed up for this one class. It's a course on happiness. The psychology professor, Dr. Santos, she says that she started the class because she observed that many Yale students have deprioritized their happiness, as she sees it, 
in order to get to a school like Yale, and now they're there and miserable on the cusp of the job of their dreams, with the wealth of their dreams, in the school of their dreams, and they're not happy. What are you passing on to those who watch your life? Try and be just happy-go-lucky? Or do you want them to see the essence of your faith? You worship a God who's transformed. And life's not always happy, but God is always good. What are we passing on? We've seen many studies about millennials, but Generation Z is right behind them. If you're 20 or younger today, you're Generation Z. There's not a real marker of this generation, but one thing we know is that it is the greatest and largest generation in United States history. A quarter of the U.S. population right now is Gen Z. What is being handed to our youth today, to our young people? That money makes you happy? That the bigger the house, the bigger the joy? The shinier the car, the better the reputation? Vanity. Chasing after the wind. Well, let's pass on something that matters for eternity. The worship of God. I love the zeal that Phineas had in confronting them. And I love the zeal with which they respond saying, hey, we're about the same thing here. We're about the same thing. See, they were, they, they were very deliberate. They weren't indifferent. Indifference says, well, we'll just see how, how things turn out. Indifference says, you know what, we're doing the right things, huh? we'll see. No, but deliberate says, I want to make a plan for the next generation. People will watch you, saints. And I say saints because that's what you are if you're a child of God today. Jesus' righteousness covers you. That is the greatest way to get historical. And as people see what God has done in your life, as imperfect as you and I are, I can see a God who is worthy of worship. What a gift it is to be one who knows this God and to pass that on to future generations. I asked at the beginning, what does it mean to have a passionate life of worship for God? I asked, what what do we do when, when worship wavers, when faith is on the fringe, when truth is put to the test? What What do we do? What we do is we live for the Lord. We do what Joshua told them, to cling to God, white-knuckled, to love him, to walk in his ways, to love his word, and let the truths of God just saturate our lives and transform us so that when we live, people watch us, and the next generation sees, and a generation sees them after that, and so on as the name of God is exalted through the course of history. We have a purpose now, today, If you're a child of God, Jesus gives you the responsibility of making disciples. Letting your life be poured into the life of another. And when you do so, let them see your worship. Let them see your faith. If you have children today, know that the greatest point you'll ever make is when you point to heaven, pointing them to Jesus. This is what we've got. So let's point 
And let's have a passionate worship for our God because he's worthy. He's the mighty one, God the Lord. Mighty one, God the Lord. Let's pray, fam. Father, I thank you for the great privilege it is of knowing you, Lord. Lord, we know, God, that all the other things in his life, as good as they might be, they fail to to, to reach the joys of knowing you, Lord. It's great to go to a good school and praise you, Lord, for those who know you and who are wealthy. May their wealth increase, God, for the glory of your name. God, God, I, I pray, though, that we would never find our joy and completion, Lord, and things that will falter. But Lord, that we would be preoccupied about leaving a legacy to others, one of worshiping you and knowing you. So we love you, Lord, and we surrender ourselves to you this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. 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 Let's stand to our feet. Part of getting historical is reflecting often on the cross of Jesus. Though he went to that cross 2,000 years ago, and though he died and rose from the dead, he still is working in our lives. And as a God who still lives, and as the cross that still works, we are people who still worship and will do so for all of eternity. Prayer team, would you make yourself available by coming to the front here to the stage and to the back of the room? Family, as God is moving in your hearts with whatever prayer burden you carry from the past week for other people or something that God has prodded your heart through this message, our brothers and sisters want to pray for you and pray with you. And so that's what they're here to do. So let's lift our voices and sing to our God because he is a God who is worthy of our entire life. You were the word at the beginning One with God, the Lord most high Your hidden glory in creation Now revealed in you are Christ What a beautiful name it is What a beautiful name it is The name of Jesus Christ my King What a beautiful name it is Nothing compares to this What a beautiful name it is The name of Jesus Didn't want heaven without us So Jesus, you brought heaven down My sin was great, your love was greater What could separate us now? What a wonderful name it is What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a wonderful name.
nothing compares to this. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. 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 Sing it out, Jesus. Jesus. One more time, Jesus. Jesus. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. Shout this out. You have no rival. You have no rival. Have no equal now and forever, God. You reign. Yours is. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all. He has no rival. You have no rival. No equal now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is! What a powerful name it is! The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name it is. Nothing can stand against. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. What a powerful name. again I don't care <laughs> with all my searching with all my searching with all my questions I came up empty I came up empty Hopeless, stranded and homeless until uh, then I heard your name above the noise. It silenced all my doubts. Come on, every fear in me and all my shame. Hey! 
our God who is like our God church nobody there's no God like our God I love that line he has silenced the boast of sin and grave man sin had the arrogance to think it had conquered over Jesus the the grave had the arrogance to think it would be occupied forever. But our Savior defeated both and shut them up. If you're a child of God today, leave with that hope and let those truths be the things that bring your voice to sing to Him, your heart to be surrendered to Him, and your life to be lived as an act of worship. If you don't know this God, we'd love for you to come to know him and put your faith in him. If you want to know more, please talk with one of our prayer team members and myself after the service here. We'd love to share with you more about how great Jesus is. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be our glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, both now and what? Forever. Amen. Amen. This is our God. You are dismissed. We'll see you guys downstairs. Real Communities, just a reminder about the Covenant Family Class. Uh, It'll be at 1230. We'll see you downstairs.